This morning's scripture reading comes from Philippians 4, 4 through 9. Please follow along in your own Bibles or as the text is presented on the screens above. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and perdition, with thanksgiving, Present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in, G- in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, Put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Whatever is excellent or praiseworthy. So it's Veterans Day, more or less, right? And uh, we want to just, in that, give thanks. Does that seem right? And uh, we are grateful. And we, I want you to remind your heart right now how grateful you are for those who have served. And just together, can we just say thank you? One, two, three. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah, okay. Uh, anxiety. Here's the here's the bad news: is that there never is that time in your life where you get past it. It's always going to be there, and there's always at every phase of life there will be reasons to be anxious. You start out as a little kid, and for me, it was going off to school and wondering if I had the the smarts to do whatever they asked me to do there. And then you get into the that continues until you get to college and whatever. And but then you get into your teen years and you really wonder if anybody will really like you if they know about you and that continues but that's pretty intense right there and then you get into uh, all the things that go with college and then you start to wonder if somebody will ever marry you and then they do surprise surprise and then you wonder if you're going to have kids you may hope you know if, if you do you're going to have is that going to raise or lower your anxiety yeah and then you get to midlife and you have this crisis where you start to wonder, is my life really significant enough? I've been there about 30 years now. And um, then you finally you get to an older age where you wonder if you have enough saved up to get, you know, will you run out of money before you run out of life or days? And you have, the point is there's always going to be something to worry about. I just think it's good to get that out on the table and not try to fool ourselves, just to realize that's life. But... I want to focus in particularly on the teen and uh, those, those years around the teenage years uh, to illustrate uh, a point. This is from Madeline Levine, who was actually at Skyline High School. She spoke there about three years ago. Uh, she's at Stanford now. She's a researcher and a clinician with understanding uh, kids, especially from areas like this. Teenagers used to tell me, I just need to get my parents off my back. I remember thinking that, maybe saying that. There has been a shift. Now so many students have internalized the anxiety. The kids at this point are driving themselves crazy. So it's not that their parents are driving them crazy, although they may still be. I'm sure there's a few testimonies to that. But that kids can drive themselves crazy. So I, I had the opportunity a few years back when I was uh, in a previous place in Alaska. And uh, we had a, in our church a young man. I watched him. One of the cool things about being a pastor for a long time is you get to watch these kids grow up. This was a great kid. He had uh, done really well in school. He, had done, he was well, uh, well-rounded in different activities and music and sports. And he seemed to excel at everything. And he was just humble. And, and um, 
And we got, he had a good relationship. He went off to Cal Davis and got straight A's. And then he got into UCLA Law School. And that's a good law school if you didn't know it. And uh, he got in, and then the first year, about January, he came home with uh, anxiety-related depression. And so I had the opportunity then to sit down with him and process some things. And so the, the root of the problem was that he had gotten A minuses and Bs for the first time in his life. And he did not handle it. And, and you can't blame him. I mean, in a sense, he's... I mean, what do you... I mean, I'm sure that this story has been played out in this community. That's <laughs> what I'm sure of. But when you go to a school like UCLA Law School, everybody there has gotten straight A's wherever they came from. And you can't, as you go up the ladder, you can't, not everybody can, you know, they, they, it doesn't work that way. Life isn't that way. So we talked about that, and I got him to realize that he's probably in the top 1% of all kids born in his year in America. Uh, he's in the top 1%. He agreed. But he says, the reality is, I'm in the, barely in the top 50% of my law school class. And there's just this angst that goes with that. So we talked about in the environment that he was in and how it was producing that angst and got him to look at that environment and ask the question, is that really healthy? What that environment is doing to you and to others? Because there's people below you on the chart. Is that really a good thing? And uh, he looked at within himself, too, and some of the basic assumptions that he was making about life. And he came to a place where he, he was out of the school for a year, and he was able to go back, get his Bs, maybe a few As, and he got through it. And he's healthy, and he's good, and he's alive. His parents were actually concerned that he, you know what I'm going to say. I won't say it. He was that depressed. All right, so the... Um, Environments tend to shape us, and we, if we get into an anxious environment, we're going to have an anxious heart. What anxiety will do, and I'm going to get, these are some of the effects. This is from uh, Edwin Friedman's work, which I will share a little bit more later, but it decreases our capacity to learn. And that's counterintuitive in, to some degree, because I think, I always felt like my professors didn't know that, you know, whatever. Uh, replaces curiosity with a demand for certainty. It distorts our ability to hear and see what is real. That's what happened to, to this kid. It prompts desire for a quick fix. And uh, see if we can go on to the next slide. It arouses feelings of helplessness and self-doubt. That was super true with this guy. It leads to defensive behaviors. It creates either-or thinking, uh, creating imagination gridlock where you think there's only two solutions. There's A or B. And so many times, you guys know this in life, you've been around a while, that there's always, almost always more than two solutions. And uh, you, you, don't, you can't get there. You're just too anxious. And it causes bl blame throwing. That's Friedman's term, where you assign blame to somebody else. All right, so uh, anxiety is, is a problem, uh, and it gets in, reinforced by the environments that we are in. Now, the good news is that God has given us uh, some very helpful tools. We're going to get to those today that we can access. Everybody here can access. There's no, it doesn't matter how smart you are or whatever. It just, they're there for the taking. And I want to try to lead us to that. But before we go there, I want to give you our... Uh, 
this is our little outline. It's pretty simple. How anxiety is socially transmitted. And I'm going to use some insights from psychology there that hopefully uh, will be helpful. We, we believe that uh, the Bible teaches that all truth is God's truth and that we can find truth in psychology as well as other sciences uh, that are very consistent with God's word. And then how it gets spiritually dissolved. And that's where we will walk through the, uh, a, little, a prayer together as part of that. So hopefully, here's my hope, and this is my prayer, is that for myself and for you, is that when we go out of here in a bit, that you will be less anxious. Pretty simple, right? Wouldn't that be a good thing? Are you for it or against it? Yeah, okay. All right. All right, so uh, Paul, I'm going to start with his situation in, in uh, Philippi. Paul uh, was writing the letter most scholars believe that at least a big part of the reason he wrote the letter was to bring down the anxiety that the church in Philippi was facing. Why were they facing anxiety? And by the way, when Paul uses the word you in almost all of his letters, unless it tells you some other reason, you want to think you all. So figure you're from the South or Paul is. Because it's a plural second person you, not the, not the first. So we tend to read them individually, but uh, in this text you'll find the, the, the word you in there and he's speaking to a group of people like I am right now. So you, you all. And this you all group uh, was struggling with two areas or two uh, things that were prompting anxiety in them. The first was in the exterior, the second was within the group itself. Outside of the group, the church in Philippi was a minority group that w- they were being persecuted or um, ridiculed or socially uh, you know, ostracized for their beliefs in Christ. It was kind of a weird new uh, cult-ish thing in that world. And so they experience what many of us experience when we follow Christ, that it's not well received. And economically also that many were we think, losing their jobs because the social system and the economic system were tied together by what were called called guilds. We would call them guilds today or trade unions or something like that. So there's a lot of pressure on them from the outside. And then from the inside, we have a, a right before the passage that we read, which is one of the most famous passages on anxiety and peace in the Bible, there was the mention of two women who were in conflict now, in the Bible, you either get your name in the Bible for being really good or really bad. <laughs> Actually, they weren't that bad. They were just two women who couldn't agree on something, and Paul says to work it out. And then he goes into this passage about anxiety. But we all know that conflict raises anxiety in settings like this, whether it's in your home or your workplace or uh, at school. Um, it, it just does that. So those are the sources of the anxiety there. Now, just to get definition straight, the word anxiety, uh, hopefully, uh, we want to make sure that we get the definition, that the way we're using it right, and the way it gets used in the Bible right most of the time. And if I don't get this clear to you, you will be more anxious. So uh, here it is. We are not talking, the Bible is not talking when it says to do not be anxious. We're not talking about a condition that you might have that is maybe chemically based or uh, a disorder kind of thing that is that causes maybe very complex or something that was produced by a deep trauma at some point in your life or a phobia. Those are, those are things that we could talk about in a different conversation, and that's not the kind we're talking about here, although there's, there's overlap, but it's not the same thing. Secondly, we're not talking about 
the good anxiety that is acute and it's event-based, meaning something happens in your life and God has wired you to be anxious when you have a bear coming at you. And you all know what you're supposed to do, right? Be careful. Because everybody says run. That's the worst thing you could do, but your anxiety will tell you to run. So here, I, I lived in Alaska for 17 years. This is very practical advice. If the color of that bear is brown, you lay down. If the color of that bear is black, you act really big. There you go. But you do not run for either one because they love to catch. Just like your cat likes to catch a mouse. That's, you know. Anyway, I think I just raised some anxiety here. <laughs> it's hard not to run, you know. Um, so we don't want to say that's a bad thing. That's how we're wired. And our hands, when we're anxious, our hands get cold, uh, if you didn't know, because the blood goes it's, it's to the center. And, you know, your palms get sweaty and things happen physiologically. The adrenaline starts kicking in. All of that stuff is how God has made you, wonderfully made you. And not only that, but um, uh, anxiety... Well, let's just go to the, the worst, the part the Bible is talking about. And that is what's called uh, chronic anxiety. And here's, I'm going to use that phrase to mean that it is anxiety. It's kind of garden variety, but it's so common to the human condition that it gets mentioned so many times in the Bible that you can't trust God for the future. It's just an inability to trust God for the future. Instead of trusting God for the future, you try to control it yourself. That control mechanism leads to anxiety in you. You all know what that feels like, am I right? I mean, that's, to, be, to be human is to feel that. And that's where the Bible continually speaks into that kind of uh, bringing that down. Let's trade that for the peace of God, and we'll get to that. So there's the, uh, make sure we're talking about the right thing. Now, psychology, this is one of the, this isn't the last word on this, but I'm going to give you one particular uh, field of study, and it's called uh, Family Systems uh, Psychology, and it's, it was originally put out by a man named um, Murray um, Bowen, Family Systems, and it's been uh, written about by Edward Friedman more recently. Basically, it goes like this, that when you have uh, high anxiety, or, or the higher the anxiety in a group, the less health in that group. And I think we could probably understand why. I don't have to make that point. Uh, secondly, though, that when you have a lot of anxiety in a group setting, and this could have been in, in Philippi, you'll have, think about your home, because this is where I'm gonna, my, my example will be in your home, but uh, what you'll have are people in that home or in that group that will adjust themselves to the anxiety, learning to live with it, because you don't want it, what? You don't want more anxiety. You don't want more conflict. And so you just kind of adjust yourself and allow that anxiety to coexist with everybody in the home, and, and it becomes part of the identity of that home. Uh, Eggshelling is one of the, where you just walk around the person because you don't want to set them off, and uh, that kind of thing. This could be a boss, so this applies to your workplace, and certainly it could apply to uh, a place like this. Another, another expression that this, um, another phrase that this uh, family systems theory brings up is you, there are fields of emotion or emotional fields, and when anxiety 
gets into an emotional field, it creates all kinds of things in people. And we, we listed some earlier that, that are not good. And so think of what you feel when you go into a place like this uh, where you, you would kind of hope it would be joyful, but what you feel is high anxiety. Maybe in, in Philippi, it's these two women, that one of them sitting over here, one of them sitting over here. Everyone knows they're having an argument. Can't they just get together? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's, it's the elephant in the room, and it creates a lot of, of anxiety. Now, the story that I want to share is personal to me. So when I was in first grade, and my first grade year was not my best year, um, I, had to, I lived with a great anxiety in first grade that I would be in first grade again the second year. <laughs> Let's put it that way. They called it flunking back then. It was not a good word. Uh, the nice people called it being held back, but it was pretty much flunking. And so I, but I made it through that first year, and we took a trip to California for the first time in my life. We got on a 707, if any of you uh, Boeing folks remember what that was. And we flew to L.A., and we went to Disneyland, and I got, I got sick on the teacups, if you can believe it. Yeah. Yeah. But it was a great trip. I learned how to swim, but we stayed with this family that uh, my parents knew, but we, my sister and I did not. And they had a, uh, uh, there were two kids in their family roughly our age. But what I noticed, and I'm, a, I'm an underachieving seventh, seven-year-old noticing this, that the, the mom was really uptight. She was very... Uh, I guess controlling and it felt constrictive and you always had to ask permission to do something and you weren't sure what you were going to get back from her and it created this anxiety in the family and everybody just kind of like we don't want to nobody came out and said it this way but we don't want to set her off kind of thing we just you know let because it does it's not good if mom gets uh, set off and I'm picking this up as a seven-year-old and I honestly, I mean, and, not, and a below average seven-year-old. So, you know, I mean, that's, it was, and I never, it's funny that I never really talked about it with anybody until today. It's kind of funny. But what I, I found out years later, and here's a, here's a phrase to remember, that anxiety is often more symptomatic than problematic. So it's a symptom of something deeper. And in her case, I didn't know this, that she, and no one ever told me this, she had lost a child, a first child, a boy, tragically. And then you can see how that created anxiety in how she responded to her two children who were still there and, uh, and everyone else, it seemed. But I want to give you this little quote from Friedman. Uh, this relates, and I think you'll see it. The focus on safety, uh, whether it's product, workplace, nutritional, nuclear, to- toxic waste, has become so omnipresent in our chronically anxious civilization that there is a real danger we will come to believe that safety is the most important value in life. In other words, take all the risk out of life if we can. And you know that if you take all the risk out of anything, it won't be as good, but that's the risk, right? 
it, it, it won't be as good, but maybe it won't be as bad, and you end up with a pretty flat existence. Now, we have, we have to say here that safety is good, but when it becomes the pinnacle to which everything is built around, it creates all kinds of anxiety, and I really think that this statement is behind her anxiety as I understand it from afar. Does that make sense? You know? Now, we're getting a little bit... I'm going to work our way back to the text here. But uh, before I do, uh, I want to give you some examples of what, what it might look like to have somebody, whether it's a parent or a boss or a leader, who has a non-anxious presence. Because what, what Friedman is saying, and I, I'm going to use Jesus here in a minute to illustrate it, but when you have a non-anxious leader, whether it's in the home or in the workplace or in the school, it, it really helps everybody, bringing that anxiety down. Uh, so I, I was reading... Um, Recently, I'm just about finished with Team of Rivals, which is Doris Kearns Goodwin, uh, her biography of Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War. Great book. Just a great book. But it's about 700 pages, which may make you anxious, all right? <laughs> it, but it, Lincoln, the picture of Lincoln, it, I, as I was preparing this week, I'm thinking, he, he gets it. There were uh, members of his cabinet who were highly anxious he had to deal with all kinds of conflict. And in the midst of that uh, conflict or anxiety, he had this uh, a calmness about him that he exported to them in a way that is phenomenal. Whereas this mom exported her anxiety to her family. You can see Lincoln just with his winsome humor and uh, his wisdom and just the way his, he carried himself and he did have a lot of anxiety, but he carried himself in such a way with such a maturity that he was able to, and the whole nation, I mean, talk about anxiety. So he would be somebody I would point to. But of course, more than that, Jesus Christ. Last week, Pastor Sharon, we were in the boat with Jesus. The, the 12 disciples are here. There's a huge storm coming up. And Jesus, what the heck are you doing? You're sleeping. And the disciples say, don't you care about us? They wake him up. And wouldn't it have been awful if the scripture said, and Jesus suddenly woke up and realized it was storming. He said, whoa, what are we going to do? <laughs> but he, he calms the storm. He speaks into the storm. But he, more than importantly, he speaks into their hearts. And he calms their hearts. Jesus has a non-anxious presence. That's why we're, we, we want to be clear. We're going to get to this verse about being near. The Lord is near. The one who has a non-anxious presence, he's near. And uh, so my human example of this is, is my wife, who I could say lots of good things about, but I'll just pick one, right? But uh, she is such a, a calm presence in the storm. Now, I'm not saying she never gets anxious, but on average... She has a calming influence. So sometimes when people have come to me and say, I'm all, I'm all, I just say, hey, go stand next to my wife. It's the best thing I've got to offer. <laughs> you know, I take two aspirin or whatever, but go stand next to her. No, she has this way, and it's, uh, it's just part of Jesus in her that is a wonderful gift to others. All right, so I want to get to the text now, and I'm sorry to take so long to get here, but we're going to walk through this, and I'm going to try to give you some, some insight, and then we're going to pray through it together, more or less. And um, that's where you know, the Spirit works. So rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice is verse 4. Uh, it's... Let me just say it this way. If you rejoice, what's going to happen to anxiety? You, you, you can't, they don't coexist. If you rejoice, anxiety is going to get shoved out. 
And if you bring anxiety in, your joy is going to be shoved out. So it's, it's that kind of a relationship. And um, uh, there's the, the, the odd, here's, here's a way of defining joy that is helpful. Joy coexists just fine with sorrow. There's, there's this odd thing about joy that sorrow gets along well with it. Because joy is deep and sorrow is real and the sorrow doesn't override the joy, it actually kind of deepens the joy because there's something deeper to hold on to than the sorrow. And it, so a week ago, yesterday, I, was, I just had this huge privilege of being able to speak at the person's uh, memorial service down in Olympia who was my pastor until I was in my late 30s and he, just, he influenced me in a huge way. Um, and one of the things that was brought out by me and others in the service was how his life was characterized by joy. And just you, when you pictured Howard, you pictured joy. And it was the, the kind of the theme of the day. And yet everyone there was feeling sorrow. No question about it. So they go together. Let me even deepen that story a little bit for you. It's kind of crazy what happened. But that was Saturday. On Sunday, uh, I got a call from my sister. My sister is actually uh, Howard. The, he was 91, and he's, um, she is the daughter-in-law to him and my sister. So we had this connection. And she was taking Howard's wife, Arlene, who's 92, back to Spokane, where she lives. And they stopped out in North Bend. In fact, she called me from out there saying, the pass is closed. I don't know, it was about 3 o'clock last Sunday. pass is closed. We're going to wait it out here in North Bend, and uh, then we're going to hit the road, because we thought they might come to our house, and it didn't work out. But I get this, uh, this text message thing that said, Arlene at the, at the North Bend Starbucks, she went to use, she had to use the restroom, she went into the, she locked the door, and she fell on the floor and broke her leg, her femur, yeah. And I just think, my sister has to get, figure out how to get the door open, and they got the emergency medics there and all the rest. They finally get, they figure out it's best to take her to Spokane. They get her to Spokane, and she has the, whatever needs to be done there, and she's recuperating. And I get to the end of hearing all this, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, you know what? And I said, but how is Arlene? How is she? Not meaning her, phys- not physically, but how is she doing with, I mean, you know, you, you, you memorial service, next day you break your leg. 92 years old, what are the odds? And Anne just said, my sister said, Mark, it's unbelievable. She has the joy of the Lord in her. And she was so joyful for that service and so thankful for 64 years of marriage. And the, the, whatever happened here, was, it was still real. And there was obviously sorrow and everything else mixed in, but that joy sustained her. The joy of the Lord was her strength. It's an amazing thing. I mean, I, I'm not making this stuff up. This happened. All right. Next thing. Exhibit gentleness, verse 5a. Let your gentleness be made known to all. Both joy and gentleness are what's called fruit of the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit wants to work those into our lives. This is his, his work in us, making us more like Jesus. These are all traits of Jesus. To be gentle is um, uh, the Old Testament word for anxiety has to do with having your throat constricted where you feel like you can't breathe. 
and if you if you've had a panic attack, you know what I'm talking about here. Well, uh, the New Testament word has to do with being scattered or divided or uh, obsessively everywhere at once. And if you know an anxious person, that's kind of how it feels. And uh, um, there's a dog running by, and there's a squirrel over there, and it's almost time to quit. You know, that's, that's, that's the example of an anxious... I do it all the time. I'm kind of this way. Okay, focus, focus. So the story in the New Testament that illustrates gentleness is if, if Mary and Martha. Mary is the one who is at the Lord's feet, just focusing on Jesus, very near to him, and Martha is running around doing all these things. Martha throws a blame-throwing question to Jesus, saying, why is Mary sitting there? She should be helping me do all these things. And Jesus says back to her, Martha, why are you so anxious? There's that word. Why are you so anxious doing so many things? There's really only one thing right now that's important. And there's a gentleness to Mary's uh, spirit in that whole thing, and there's an edge to Martha. She's not gentle. Exhibit gentleness. And then the next one is know his nearness, verse 5b. The Lord is near. And without this verse in the middle, the other ones are commandments to us, but to know his nearness is to know the reality of what makes all the rest of this happen. If it's said that Jesus Christ or the Lord is far away from you, none of this will work. It's his nearness that makes everything possible. So when we get to our prayer, we're going to come back to that one. And then we make the exchange. Now here's here's the, the active ingredient for getting rid of anxiety in this whole thing is to take, it says, be anxious for nothing. So we're going to get rid of anxiety, but what are we going to trade? What's going to take its place? The peace of God is going to take its place, but how are we going to do that? You're going to pray with thanksgiving. When you take the worries and you pray with thanksgiving, then the peace of God will come to you. So that's that's the the truth. So Peter, in, in his letter, says, cast all of your burdens upon him because he cares for you. You get to, this is the offer that Jesus makes. He invites you to make this trade. You don't have to, but you, that's where the, the, the good results happen. And then finally, to receive the promise uh, is in verse 7. And when we receive uh, that promise, here it is, that the peace of God, which is hard for us to understand as humans, will guard your heart's and your minds. It'll, it'll guard your, the thoughts of your heart and the thoughts of your minds through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Literally, it means something like this. The peace of God, so the peace that God has in his heart, and you have to settle, is God at peace? Is he a peaceful God? You have to settle that. But his peace, the peace of God, can be yours, and he will guard that peace with a, a strong army. There's a word in there that implies a military force. In the midst of whatever chaos you're in, he's not necessarily going to change the chaos, but he can change the chaos on the inside. That's the promise. He will guard you. All right, I want to ask you to stand right now. We're going to walk through this together as a prayer. 
the invitation of, I believe, the Holy Spirit is for each of us. So what I want you to do is go ahead and close your eyes and picture God as best you can. And um, that's always a, a hard thing uh, for us to get our minds around, obviously, picturing the infinite. But the scriptures say that Jesus Christ is the radiance of God, the exact representation of his nature. So maybe the best thing is to try to picture Jesus. We get so many glimpses of him in the, in the New Testament. Picture Jesus as best you can. And ask yourself these questions. Is he full of joy? Is he full of gentleness? And is he full of peace? And if you can answer those in the affirmative, then the next step is to come near to him. As the, as the scripture says, the Lord is near. So come near to the Lord. Does he seem near to you now? in this moment is he inviting you to come closer to him now for the exchange are you open for the exchange to trade the anxieties of your heart for the peace of God are you tired of chronic anxiety of not trusting the future to him? Are you open to casting all of your cares upon him? And as you answer that question, remember that anxiety is not just something in your heart, but it spills out. That maybe you owe it to those that you love to get rid of your anxiety. And then finally, receive the promise that the God of peace would grant you the peace of God, that he would guard your heart and your mind with an army, a strong army, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.